Well, welcome. That is just, it's just so epic. I feel like it's so underwhelming to come up here and just be like, not starting a movie or something after that. But welcome. My name is Nate. I am the student ministries pastor here at uh, the bridge. Let's pray and uh, we'll get into it. God, we thank you so much for this morning, for this time together to, uh, to worship and to open up um, your word and to just learn and to just to sit at your feet and to yeah, just dwell in your, in your presence. So God, this morning I pray that you would uh, just continue to speak um, through your word and through this time together. And would this just be an encouragement. I just pray these things in your name. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't love confrontation. It's probably not surprising, but I'm just someone who typically shies away from any sort of confrontation, argument, anything that kind of brings any like tension uh, between people. I feel like that's the majority of people. There's not a lot of people out there who are just like itching for a confrontation with most people. But I especially like to me, conflict and confrontation. It's not. It's not for me. So a few weeks ago, um, I was pulling into uh, our grocery store up in Lynn Valley. And it was pouring rain. I thought that I could just beat, I could just beat the rush and do this at like 9 a.m. on a Friday and just get it done. And turns out that is when every other mom and dad in Lynn Valley are, are grocery shopping. And so the parking lot is full and it's pouring rain and you can like barely see what is going on. And I'm like, this is, this isn't good. This is a bad, this is a bad call. And so I'm doing that like circle around the parking lot, just trying to find, trying to find a spot. And so eventually, you know when you're just, you're finally circling and you finally just like, you target that one person that's leaving and you make that eye contact and they're like going to their car and they're like, like, yeah, you can take my spot once I unload this. So I just kind of like just stalk this person to their spot, flip on my blinker. And I just wait there for like a minute and I'm like, awesome, this is done. I'm like, when has there ever been this much traffic or like not enough spots? And I'm waiting there. And as they're pulling out, I see this car on the other side come. And as soon as they pull out, this car just comes and just takes my spot. And I'm like, like that's not allowed. Like there, there's, there's, a, there's, there's etiquette to this, pro, this process. Like maybe this person just didn't know, but I am like, I am shook. I, 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 the, the wheels are turning. I'm like, what am I, what am I going to say to this guy? And luckily I get a spot, like... 10 seconds later, so all was well. But I get out and I'm like, maybe, like, maybe I have to say something, you know? Like, maybe this is the moment that I really break out of this, my fear. And so we're both walking to the grocery store and I, I, I see him. And he just, like, looks at me and he, like, nods as if he's just so unaware of what just happened. And he's like, morning. And I'm just like, morning. <laughs> and that's it. That's it. That was literally my... my that was my confrontation. So the rest of this grocery shop, I'm just like, what happened back there, bro? <laughs> like, you literally, this is going to be your moment. Like, you were like, and it wasn't going to be harsh. It was going to be like, hey, like, there's, there's a process. Like, you know, I've waited. I've been here longer than you. Where, like, what were you doing? So as you can tell, like, I, yeah, confrontation to me, confrontation to me, are, we just, doesn't gel, you know? Um, 
I would also just add to that, like North Shore driving in general, parking lot, the parkway, any of that thing, is just making me into such like a more confrontational person. So maybe it, it will eventually happen. But all that to say, yeah, confrontation and I, I'm just someone, I'm like, I prefer just to keep the peace. It's one thing for that confrontation to happen over a parking spot or a way of driving. But what about if that confrontation that comes up in your life in your heart, is actually because of being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus. If that conversation comes up through just simply like bowing down to Jesus in our life, which can be, div- can be a bit divisive, if you think about it. The idea of confrontation coming up because of your faith, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel uncomfortable. There's kind of two sides to that coin, where there's people who, like, they want to take their faith, and they want to take whatever cultural issues going on, and we're just going to, like, we're going to go at it, and we're going to, we're going to have this, have it out. And that makes me feel, at times, un, uncomfortable. But then there's the other side of the coin, where it's like, I'm going to avoid anyone knowing that I possibly follow Jesus. Like, if I can go through as much of life as possible without anyone even knowing that I go to church on a Sunday and I'm a part of this, the better. Both extreme, both not ideal. There has to be a sweet spot. And so this morning we're continuing through this book of Acts, which to me has been such a joy. Like I've loved seeing our, our church as, like, grow and, and not just like numerically, but spiritually, to see our church just like really take on what the early church did. What were they devoted to? What are we going to be devoted to? And to see us almost parallel the book of Acts. And it's been so good. And in the book of Acts up to this point, up to chapter 4, I'm sure there would have been tensions and challenges. It couldn't have just been perfect, like eight months of just harmony, and it's just like, wow, like we can't miss. This is great. But when it comes to Acts 4, there's resistance. And so what happens when we come up against resistance? And so this morning's passage is all about that. It's all about the first time where Peter and John and the early church not just, don't just come up against resistance and confrontation, but the beginning of persecution. For the rest of the way, all the way until the end of the book of Acts, there's only three chapters that don't talk about persecution. And so this is the beginning. This is the beginning of confrontation um, through, uh, through following Jesus, through proclaiming his name. So we're going to start verses 1 to 4 in, in, chap- in chapter 4. Should be nice. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there was a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them and said, since it was already evening, wait, I misread that. They arrested them and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who had heard their message believed it. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. And so up to this point in the book of Acts, we have the early church just beginning to burst at the seams. It feels like at every single chapter, we have Jesus' Jesus' name being preached, and then we have people responding. And this story ties right into what we heard last week, which was more preaching and more responding, and then more preaching, and then more people coming to know Jesus. But then we get this confrontation, and right away, the leaders of the day have a problem with what is being spoken of publicly. 
And so they're confronted by this crew. And they don't know what to do with this growing mass of people. Like, what would you do in that situation? Every single time these people, these like ragtag group of people start preaching the name of Jesus, people are just responding over and over and over again. People just keep hearing the gospel and responding. In Acts 3, or in Acts 2, it talks about like how these people were just like devoted. And it just kept happening, where they, they, they just kept hearing it. And not just being like, okay, cool, I'm into that. They started joining this community, and they started to devote, them, devote themselves to the, Acts, the, the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to prayer, and to like a radical life of hospitality, which is insane. And so they don't know what to do. And so they decide to like, kind of put a lid on it. They're just like, let's just put you guys in prison, and we'll just like sort this out tomorrow. Like this is just this isn't a today task. We're just going to deal with you maybe tomorrow morning. Which kind of like reminds me. Oh, touch the mic. Is that a? I don't know. Which reminds me of like I realized as I was going going over this last night that I have a lot of grocery store references this week. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Like Craig uses a lot of sports references, and I'm just up here like. So the grocery store. Am I right? <laughs> But this idea of the, of the uh, I know I started doing grocery shopping at our house and also Nate's just like, no more sports for me, okay? Grocery shopping's very serious. But this idea of them throwing these people into, uh, into prison kind of reminds me of like, if you're, uh, if you're like packing the pantry, you're just like kind of putting stuff away and uh, it's like, you, you, went to, you made the mistake of going to Costco for a snack and you, instead of getting 12 granola bars, you got 112 granola bars and the box is about this big and there's no room, so you, you kind of put it away, but as you're putting it away, it's kind of teetering on the edge and you're like, ah, I don't know if it's going to make it, but you quickly slam the door and you're like, we'll deal with that, maybe whoever opens this up next, there might be an avalanche of granola bars coming at them, but we'll just deal with it. So it's kind of like, you pack it all away, you close the door and it's like, whew, We'll deal with that tomorrow. And that's kind of what happens here. The response out of this situation is, is like thousands and thousands of people responding. And the next day, they open it back up, and Peter and John are not just like sitting on their, on their hands. They're like, they're ready to preach Jesus. And so verse 5 to 7 says this, The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of the religious law met in Jerusalem Annas and the high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? And so the meeting is called, and the story gives us an outline of who was there. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll notice that some of the names that are mentioned here are the same people who were there for the trial of Jesus. And so this would have been in the same year, so it's not like they're like unfamiliar. They're just like, oh, who is this Jesus guy? They would have like, kind of felt like this was already dealt with. Like, I thought we've, I thought we've killed that guy. I thought, this was, I thought this was done. And could you imagine like, getting that call the next day from like, I don't know how they communicated back there, I'm sh- like, but I can imagine it just being like, like hey, you've got to come back down to Jerusalem for this like, conversation. It's going to be about a Jesus guy again. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I thought we had done this already. I thought this, I thought this was done. It's like, no, like, not only did we kill him, like, he's, he's, like, he defeated the grave. It's his long story. Like, he defeated the grave. He's back. And all these people are like, preaching his name. And there's like, thousands and thousands of people in our city just like, committed to this thing. And they're like, oh, all right, here we go. And I really like the way that Eugene Peterson in the message translates or paraphrases this on who was attending this trial. He says everybody who was an anybody was there. So all of 
the big wigs, all of the people who were of importance in the religious uh, sphere of Israel are to be a participant in this, which is important. There is a gap that is beginning to grow in the book of Acts between old Israel and new Israel. Old Israel feeling as though them preaching Jesus goes against everything that we have supposedly been taught. This doesn't fit with what is supposed to actually happen. Like, this isn't how it's supposed to go. This isn't how I envision this. And so for them, everything that they're teaching is blasphemy. To teach in the name of Jesus and to, and to, like, and to claim that, that through, for, through like claiming his name and like, you receive a forgiveness of sins goes against everything that they thought. But on the other side, for John and Peter, they knew that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. They know that all that has come before them is fulfilled in Jesus. This scene highlights the growing tension between these parties. And so they ask the question, by what power or by what name do you do this in? Or put simpler, who put you in charge to do such things? Imagine being in the shoes of those asking this question, though. Their very power that they, their entire life and their lifestyle was built on is now being questioned by a bunch of, bunch, by these two dudes who they later claim to be very uneducated, are like these ex-rural fishermen from Galilee. And now their entire power and their entire hierarchy of like how they live so comfortably is about to be flipped upside down because of this. So they feel threatened. So we read on, verse 8 to 12, in response to that question. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So Peter just, he just goes off here. But this confidence isn't him just mustering up the courage. Because Jesus, before he departed, gave one last deposit of information to his disciples. In Luke 21, 14, he says, like, in these situations, there's going to be situations. There's going to be, there's going to be a time coming when, and it's not if, it's when it happens, when you are going to be put on trial. You're going to be in situations where you're not going to know what to say. Like, don't worry. Like, have faith. Like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be with you in those, in those moments. And remember that this is a trial. To me, this doesn't seem like the arena to share what your opinions are. But he just goes for it. There's this confidence about uh, Peter and John in this story that they just, they just know. That this is like what they, well, they've been anointed to do this task. And so he flips the trial on its head. No longer is the trial about them, but he's putting, there's almost this moment where he's flipping the trial and it's like, it's not about us anymore. In fact, it's about you guys. You are the ones who've killed Jesus. 
And his words are so cutting here. For them to hear this, it's like, look at what you've done. Look at what you've done to Jesus. Like this, this was this, like this is the man who was sent by God, and you've just you, you killed him. And the real kicker out of this whole section to me is verse twelve. This this claim that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus, and that He is the one who saves. His name and His name alone is the one who saves and leads to salvation. The word salvation here is, I mean, it's a beautiful word. In this context, remember that the healing man is, the healed man is still in the room. I feel like this would be so awkward if you're the healed, the healed guy. Like, you're just like, how did I get roped into this situation? Like, I'm in this very, very important trial, and there's just the healed man off to the side. But this whole thing is about what has happened to him. Remember that he was the one that was healed and he was the one that has now brought about uh, this conflict. And so salvation here can mean going from a place of, of being once sick to being healed. But I think salvation here, not I think, I know salvation here is so much bigger than that. Salvation being in the name of Jesus alone points to the fact that the author of life, like we talked about last week, there's an invitation to life through Jesus alone, that can only be accessed by calling on the name of Jesus. That's it. That's as simple as it gets, is that calling on the name of Jesus leads to salvation. And that's where I think our world falls short. I think culture, I think our world really likes the idea of a lot of what Jesus would have to say. This idea of like, you know, loving your neighbor, um, you know, spending time in like silence and solitude, it sounds very like, oh, it sounds very nice. But there's a lot of parts of who Jesus is and the life that he calls us to that are so much more radical than that. The culture takes a little bits of that and a little bit from everything else and they kind of build a little bit of a blend of like, what, what feels good to me? And that falls short. That straight up falls short of what Jesus called to life abundance is. St. Augustine says that our heart is restless until it finds it's rest in him. Our hearts are, are, are constantly searching for something, but our hearts will always be trying to fill an empty void unless we go to Jesus, where he's going to actually be the fulfillment of that hole. There's, I think Tim Keller talks about there being a God-sized hole in each of us. And most of this world is, is just constantly trying to fill that with something, anything, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of a self-help, a little bit of all of these things, and trying to piece it together and say, like, I feel something. I'm a little bit more complete. And it's just, it, it's not true. There's a famous parable that gives a very, very secular answer to the claim that all religions are equal and the same, and that salvation is a quite subjective experience. The parable is of a blind man, bunch of blind men all encountering an elephant at the same time. They all walk towards this thing and are all blind and are all experiencing a different part of the elephant. And so to some, they're feeling the tusks. To some, they're feeling uh, the side. But that is so pixelated. That's my bad. That is... Can you guys even see that? Kind of. There's, there's an elephant there in case you didn't... And there's people around it. But the idea is that we all kind of come to uh, like morals and this world with this idea of like what, what's true to me and what's true to you are the same thing. 
And so people come and they're like, well, like, I, can't, I can't take my limited uh, subjective experience and say that it's more of an experience than your limited experience. And we all just kind of compare. But the reality is, is that's actually just not true. That assumption, it's the bridge logo now, that assumption is built on the fact that we all come to life blind, that it's all just this subjective experience that we're just like feeling our way through. But the reality is, that's not true. As followers of Jesus, like, we don't just have a limited subjective experience. There are promises and there are truths through Scripture, through the person, through the name of Jesus, that actually give us objective truths on who Jesus is, on what it is to like, live a life um, to the glory of God, what it means to actually know Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so that's where, to me, any sort of language about this being like not an exclusive thing, and it, when I say exclusive, I don't mean that there's only some people who are invited in. I think it, it, the invitation by Jesus is to all people, but life is only found through Christ alone. There's this great quote by a guy by the name of Elton, Elton Trueblood, great name, that says, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. You see, Jesus has, Jesus by his spirit, by, by, the, by the words, by the words of, like, of this book that actually give us a way to like, objective truth on who Jesus is and what it means to be salvation alone through, through Christ's name. Now, of course, we want to be respectful as people come to Christ on their own terms. We don't have to relist all of the injustices done by a group of people who believe that it is through Christ alone that people are saved, and then they come into, pe- into places and say, like, you need to like, do exactly what we say. There's a lot of injustices that have been done through history that have led to like, horrible, horrible experiences. But the true way of preaching Jesus and embodying Jesus is not through forcing others to follow him, but to first simply start with ourselves, to follow him and to embody him on our own. We live in a way that begs the question, like what is it about them that is different? And we take Jesus' word seriously when he says that we are to lay down our life uh, for others. We are to like, lay down our life, pick up our cross, follow him. We spend time with him in a way that like, sets us apart, not because we're holier than the next person, but because we truly believe that it's through Jesus that salvation comes. That, to me, is the exclusivism of, of salvation in Jesus. Which brings us to verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. After this powerful encounter, where these religious leaders were just kind of put on blast, they, were, they have been, at this point, feeling it. They're like, wow, we have, okay, there's something different about these guys. The leaders are blown away at the confidence at which these men are speaking. And that yet, they're described as unschooled and ordinary, they're kind of just run-of-the-mill people. As I said earlier, these, 
these guys, be, like, as soon as Jesus is killed, after spending three years following them, they're just like, well, what are we supposed to do? Like, I guess our job was just to be fishermen. I guess we should just go back to that. These are the people who are leading the charge. The word for untrained is idiote, which I'm sure you can piece together what that one means. And it's where we get the word idiot from. But they wouldn't have meant that uh, in that, like, they wouldn't have necessarily been calling him an idiot the way that we use that word. It would have just meant, like, less than average. I don't know what's worse, less than average or idiot. I don't, I don't know. Up to you guys. But I love what truly sets them apart in this, in this passage, and it's that second half. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I think that's such an important part of this passage, that out of all of this, it is them having been with Jesus that sets them apart. That's where their authority comes from. I think about that, like, what that would look like. Uh, I'll get to that later. But I just think about how powerful that is, that these people who are so far from Jesus and so far from what they believe Jesus to be, just by being around these guys knew that there was something different about them. And notice that it wasn't their status that gave them this authority. It was their posture. It was their posture of having sat at the feet of Jesus that gave them power in this situation. It wasn't coercion. They didn't craft a well-worded, uh, like, they weren't probably just sitting in that prison the, next, the night before and just like, all right, man, like, what are you going to say? Like, should we go back and forth on this part? Like, what are we, we going to bring up? Like, do you want to come in with the punchline? What are we feeling? None of that. None of that gave them any sort of status in the situation. It was them just having spent time in the presence of God, filled by the Holy Spirit, having spent time with Jesus, that gave them this confidence. Because here's the thing about not just having spent time with Jesus, but I think our, the entire like, human experience, our existence, is that you tend to become like those you spend the most time with. There's that famous line, show me your closest friends and they'll show you your future. Which like being told that when you're 15 years old, you like, look around at your friends, you're like, oh crap. You're like, okay, things have got to change. But what about it, what if for like, Flipping that for us as a, as a church and as, as followers of Jesus, I reworded it. It's a little bit more wordy. But we changed it. It said, show me your time of abiding, of being with Christ, and I'll show you your fruit. There's something powerful about having spent time with him where the fruit of our, the fruit of our lives just like flows out of that experience. There's no mustering that up. It's just simply having been with uh, with Jesus that gives us that peace and that, uh, that confidence. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to spend time with Jesus. At times we can overcomplicate this. Uh, to, to me, sometimes I really over, overthink what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus. And it's like all of these things that I have to do, all of these, all of these things that I check off on a daily, daily routine, all this stuff. And it just, becomes, it just becomes rules. It just becomes dead ritual when we, when we view God like that. But the reality is, is that it, life with Jesus kind of boils down to being with him 
and then doing the stuff that he would do if, if, you, if he was you, if he were you. If he was you, he were you. I'll say that again. I think it boils down to being with Jesus and doing the stuff that he would do if he were you. I think it would be an incredible witness for us to have the fragrance and the aroma of Jesus as we walk through our everyday life. For these men, they would, have been, they would have seen Jesus as their rabbi, which meant they would have literally sat at the feet of him as they would have taught and just spent time. And it wouldn't have just been time with Jesus where he's just like, he's nonstop teaching them. But the way that Jesus would have treated others, the way that he would have, he would have spoken to the people who were the, the outcasts of the day, even just the little interactions throughout, they would have been there and they would have seen how Jesus would have acted. And I think that's the calling for us. I'll play my cards right now. I think that the future, which by the way, if anyone's ever like, I think the future is this, disclaimer, like, I don't know if you'd listen to them, but I'll try try my best here. This is my dream of what I think the church, what this church can look like in in the coming years, and I think is already happening. Just groups of, this group of people, this, this church that is so focused on the heart of Christ, of just being so fully surrendered to him that everything else kind of falls away, that our priorities are completely shifted and changed, and that our hearts are just like so close together with Christ, and that everything that we do out of that, the, the places that we, we exist outside of this community are just blessed by the fruit and the fragrance of the people of the Bridge Church. I think to me that is so much more powerful and empowering as a church than when the church is so often, and I'm not saying our church, but capital C Church in the West, when we are so, we're often so, um, we just feel the pressure to try and make the culture around us more Christian so that it's more comfortable to live in this world. But I think the Bible often points to people living in exile in Babylon, in hard places, and saying, follow Jesus here. And what does it mean to be light in darkness in hard places? That gives me hope. That gives me hope if this community is just so, so engulfed, so, so saturated in the presence of God that we just, it, just, it just leaks out of us. It just, this is just who we are. I can imagine the city just being so blessed by the people of the church, and I'm seeing it already, the city being so blessed by all of you embodying Jesus in the everyday. Hearing so many of you just saying, like, I wake up this morning and I just want, I just say, Jesus, like, do whatever you want to do through me today. Put people in my pathway to bless. That's what I think it means to just abide. When Ashley shared about John 15, that's what I think it means to abide in Christ. Which brings to the second half. It's, we're not going to go slow. Sometimes I get to the second half and there's like, we're like, like, how, is this going to be like an hour and a half long? Don't worry. Verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there's nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they have, been, they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name. Again, so they called the apostles back in and commanded them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, 
Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. At this point, the leaders are at a loss. Imagine the power dynamic that they had over these people and the frustration they would have had. Everybody who wasn't anybody was at this meeting. And they, bringing in this ragtag group of ex-fishermen who were just leading the way, this would have just been like, just infuriating. It would have been so frustrating to be like, how could we, like, we can't stop this. We can't snuff what is going on here. And so they arrest these guys. They tell them to stop. And these guys just won't stop. They're just like, no, we're, like, this is what we have to do. At this point, they also realize that they haven't really done anything wrong at this point. Sending them out and talking about it, they realize that the healing of the man uh, as it actually hasn't been, there hasn't been any laws being broken. I mean, the whole preaching Jesus, that for them would have been a, a big no-no. That would obviously have been very frustrated uh, at the preaching of Jesus. But nothing wrong was done in the healing of the man. And this movement has led to these gentlemen becoming quite well known in the area. There's a, bit of, there's a bit of fame growing. Not that they want this fame, but there's something that's going on where if they would have arrested Peter and John for doing nothing uh, wrong by the law, there would have probably been more outrage. And probably that 5,000 would have doubled to 10,000. And so for them, they're just like, hey, just, can you guys just like stop? Like, we're just trying to keep our jobs here. And like, just, it would just be way easier if you just, you just cut out the whole Jesus thing. And so the solution is to ban them from saying the name of Jesus. If we can't punish them, at least we can limit their impact on what is going on and what's being preached. And the response is so strong. Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. I think it's so, so interesting to them that it's, it's not even just like, preaching Jesus. It's what we've actually seen and heard. Jesus is alive in this early church through the Holy Spirit and things are happening. And they're like, we have no choice in this. We are seeing things and we are hearing things. And our only thing that we can do is share this. And that's up to us. And so I think when I think of this verse of, of like, what, who should we listen to? By whose authority can we listen? I think of the, the persecuted church globally. I think, of, I think of places where, like, for us, when we read this, like, preaching Jesus is often just kind of, in our workplace, it'd be like, oh, like, you're one of those people who go to church on Sunday. That's, that's a little bit, like, weird. But the hostility hasn't grown to a place where, like, we will fully, like, I don't know, be thrown in jail or persecuted or killed for this, where you flip on the news, probably not being talked about in the news, if you go to like a website like Christianity Today or any places and you look at what's happening on a global scale, there are Christians every day, probably every hour, basically being asked the question, like, you choose Jesus, which leads to death, or you deny Jesus and you can go on and live. And the amount of people who are choosing Jesus and are dying because they can't stop proclaiming what Jesus has done in their life and in their community is staggering. But it brings me, brings me to that, that point where like these guys, their consequences for their actions are irrelevant. For them, preaching Jesus, it's like that's, 
that's their one calling in life at this point. Jesus returned and has empowered them, and they're like, the only thing that we can do at this point is preach his name. Like, what else are we going to do? We tried to go back to that fishing thing. It's not going to work. Jesus is like fully alive, and he is working in this early church, and they're like, this is it. This is what God has given us to do, and we're going to respond, and we've, we've seen what he's done, we've heard what he's doing, and we're going to keep preaching. Which brings me to that fi- the third and final point, which is there's this confrontation There's this confrontation of powers going on here. This is when the rubber hits the road. There's this showdown. Who has got the power in this story? What I find crazy is that the power that is received through Christ isn't a militant power of the day. And it isn't through a crafty marketing scheme where they hired someone out and said, you know, like, we'll just put Jesus on a billboard and things are going to happen. The power is through Jesus' blood poured out for each of us. Through Christ crucified, there's the defeating of the grave. That's where the power comes from. It's the upside-down kingdom. It's the slaughtered lamb. It's followers of Jesus seeking out the lost, the oppressed, the broken, the hurt, and saying, come, come and meet Jesus. That's the power that is being spoken about here And there's powers of this world, and there's the power in Jesus, and there's this upside-down kingdom that's happening where it's we're not going to Jesus's Jesus's name is going to be preached through through the powers of this world. It's going to be preached through each person individually, empowered by His Spirit. The woman in John four, when she meets Jesus at the well, after that after that conversation, she says, "Come and meet the man who knew everything I've ever done." That's the power of Jesus. And this is what I want to close with, is that there is power. There is power in the name of Jesus. There may come a time where our 